So here we are back in Ecclesiastes, and we're talking today about life under the sun. So Ecclesiastes starts out in the very beginning of chapter one. We're at about midway through our series, but I'll do a little bit of a review for you. In chapter one, verses two and three, Solomon writes, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. What does a man gain from all of his toil under the sun? So life under the sun, S-U-N, under the created sun and all that is broken in this world is a major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. All that is falling apart, all that is meandering away, all these places that we seek to put our hope that come ultimately to nothing. But yet Solomon, throughout the book, he offers a different way as well, a different perspective that just for the sake of a little bit of a play on words, maybe we can remember it better today, We're going to talk about life under the Son of God, the S-O-N, Jesus Christ. And in the midst of life, we find that life under the Son, S-U-N, all that is broken, meandering away, and life under the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the S-O-N, it's all happening at the same time. It's all mixed together. To put it theologically, everything was created by God. It was beautiful. It was good. And then everything got broken, everything got marred. And the world now, under the sun, the S-U-N, is fading away. But yet, in the midst of our lives, Christ is at work. He is taking these broken things that are marred, that are wasting away, and he, through the power of his cross and his resurrection, is imbuing new life in the midst of this creation. And the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Jesus is to be able to see the difference in the midst of life. It's all happening together. It's all mixed up. And we're living in the midst of it all. Life under the S-U-N and life under the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Solomon, throughout his, mainly throughout his, his letter or his, his thoughts as he gives them to us, is talking about what is wasting away, but interspersed throughout, he gives us glimpses of hope throughout. And so that's what we're going to spend our time doing today. We're going to be looking at life through uh, a lens. We're going to talk about how to look through life through a gospel lens, through the lens of the kingdom of God. You know, oftentimes, as Joe opened today with Psalm 23, and that's been prayed about, you know, in life in this world, God promises us to give us green pastures and still waters and to restore our soul. But the challenge of Psalm 23 is to see how in life you are following the good shepherd. Because sometimes you just can't see. You can't see the green pastures. You can't see the still waters. Sometimes we go to Jesus and we say, I feel, you know, and it's true, I feel so broken. I feel so empty. And Jesus says something like, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you're like, really? It is? And you say, why is everything so messed up in my world around me? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in you. It is among you. And we say, it is? I don't, I have a hard time seeing it. Or we look out of the world and everything is so, we feel like sometimes. And it's true It's messed up. And Jesus says, I see that. I'm overcoming the world. I have overcome the world. But he says, look out and see that the fields are white 
with harvest. The very same thing that we can look at in the world and say everything sad is coming ultimately true. Jesus says, no, everything through me, everything that is sad is coming untrue through the gospel. Jamie Jones, Laura just read, his wife. Uh, Jamie is our artist. He's quite an accomplished artist. Uh, But he has this picture for our series. I think it perfectly depicts what I'm talking about. On one side, over here, you have life under the S-U-N. Everything is fading away. Over here, you have life under the sun, the the Son of God. And in the middle, you have Solomon sitting in the middle, looking at the exact same landscape from two very different perspectives. The challenge for us is to be able to see both perspectives, but to not be dominated by life under the S-U-N, but life under the Son of God. You know, it's never more apparent to us that things are, are broken in this world, that we have this, these contrasting worlds of the sun, everything that's, that's meandering away, and the Son of God, than in times of grief or lament. Zach Eswine, who wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes that's been very helpful to me, said, sometimes when we look at what we cry about, we discover what we love. Sometimes when we look at what we cry about, we discover what we love. So two weeks ago, when I was in Washington, I lost my favorite pair of sunglasses. I love these sunglasses. They're like my favorite possession. I lost them in an Uber. Um, I went back to, I, I didn't know where I lost them. It must have been an Uber. I went back to the building where I thought I had lost them three times because I really wanted to find them. Alas, I did not. I did not cry, but I, I really like these sunglasses a lot. So I can fall into the trap of caring about things that really don't matter that much, just like you. You can also find this as something more important in how I sometimes fight with my wife. Um, Sometimes I care way too much about winning in my own perspective than I care about listening. And so I, I don't cry, but when I get emotional and we get into something, we can see what we love. In some cases, I love to be right. But in other cases, when I'm seeing life under the Son of God, Jesus Christ, I can also be filled with a good kind of grief, a good kind of weeping like we find with Jesus when he meets Lazarus, or before he meets Lazarus, when he meets Mary and Martha, and they're weeping at the tomb. And Jesus shows up, and he, it says Jesus wept, you know, shortest verse in the Bible. Why did Jesus weep? He wept because he loved. He loved these, these sisters. He loved Lazarus. And he also wept because he knew how broken the world was, and he knew that he was making everything sad come untrue through the resurrection but he hadn't been raised yet. He knew he was about to raise Lazarus, and so he wept. He wept with the expectation that things would be redeemed and are being redeemed through him. The other day when I came back, Olivia and I went on a 20th anniversary trip, even though we've been married 23 years, and it was a COVID delay. We went to Europe. Uh, It was amazing. Had 12 days together. I love my kids. We did not have our kids with us, which was nice. Anyway, I love them, but, um, but it was great to be together. And, and when I came back, you know, I got ready for work, you know, first day to go back to work, and I just sat down and I started weeping. And it wasn't because I don't love being here, but for 12 days I had a break from feeling all of the brokenness 
that I walk through regularly in ministry. And so when I, I sat down, just to be real with you, I sat down and I cried. And as I cried, the cry was not hopeless. It was not, I don't want this job. It was tears of desire to see broken things made new again. Broken things in you, in me, broken things as I walk through representing the persecuted church in China and some conversations, I know about things that go on over there that are awful. And, and the, the, the weeping was a prayer. I don't know if you ever feel this way, but you, you sometimes weep not out of hopelessness, not out of self-pity, but out of a desire that things would be made right. And so when we live in the nexus of, of tears and joy, we find what our hearts care about. So today we're going to look at this gospel lens. We're going we're to try to develop the gospel lens first to try to work on our desires, to work on how Solomon sees, how Jesus sees. So for the sake, even though everything is mixed up together, you have life under the sun, the S-U-N, and life under the sun, S-O-N. It's all mixed up together. For the sake of developing our gospel lens, we're going to pull it apart for a minute, and we're just going to look at what it looks like to have a gospel lens. We're going to look at life on this side of the picture mainly, okay? And then we're going to put it back together, and we're going to talk about if you have a gospel lens, how it changes what you hate, and it changes, what, it changes where you find joy. It changes what you hate, and it changes where you find joy. Let me pray for us as we jump into this. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Father, we recognize that um, we are broken people, but we are being redeemed by your Son if we believe in you. Would you give us a new perspective this morning? Fill us with your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, life under the sun, S-O-N, means seeing the world through a new lens, a new lens. And you know, it's easy for us to read Solomon, and we know he was the wisest person who's ever lived on earth besides Jesus, and it's easy for us sometimes to be like, yeah, I, I'm sure I could have that perspective, but this is Solomon. I mean, he's like the wisest guy who ever lived. How am I actually supposed to live this way? Well, actually, you know, we have some advantages over Solomon. Before we just put Ecclesiastes in a category or Proverbs in a category, we're like, I could never be that way. Think about it this way. Solomon lived before Christ. So whatever redemption that he saw, he saw it really vaguely. We live after Christ, so we can look back on the redemptive work of Jesus and see clearly how he has redeemed the world through his cross and empty tomb. We have much more revelation in the scriptures than he did. We have, we have the full body of work. We know what's coming. We know that Christ will renew all things. Solomon also did not have the Holy Spirit in the same way that we have the Holy Spirit. We have God alive in us. So it's not okay to approach Ecclesiastes and be like, well, you know, Solomon's just a really smart guy. I'm sure I can't really be that way. Actually, you have advantages over Solomon, and so do I, that we can actually develop this gospel lens. When I say gospel lens, what do I mean? Well, this pair of sunglasses that I lost two weeks ago, that's the best eyewear I've ever had. And so I remember when I put those sunglasses on, I actually could see more clearly than I'd, it was the perfect prescription, just right. Oh man, it was just so nice to see the world that way. And when we're seeing with a gospel lens, we have clarity 
about the gospel and how it impacts our lives on a regular basis. So the kingdom of God is at hand and God is at work. He's always at work. And through this lens, we can see how he's at work in our lives. So what does this lens look like? Well, we can clearly see the bad news. The bad news of the gospel is that you are broken, that you are a sinner. That you, even though, as, as Philip said as a preamble to his prayer, that you're, you're, we're all, you know, we've got some wisdom here, we've got some degrees, we've, we work really hard, we're, we're quite capable in a lot of areas, that your wisdom and your perfectionism and your drive could never satisfy the righteousness of God. So that's the bad news is on your own, through your own self-effort, through your own willpower, you can never meet God's righteous demands. In fact, the Bible calls it sin. And the more you understand the wisdom of God through the gospel, you can embrace that you are a sinner You can go low. You can embrace the bad news of the gospel. But through these lenses that you put on, you can also see the good news of the gospel. You can see that those sins that you've committed are forgiven. They are forgiven. And so when you have these feelings of guilt that come upon you for sins that you've done that you've already confessed perhaps many, many times to God, the more you grow in that gospel lens, you can understand that you're really forgiven of those sins. When shame creeps up in your life and tells you that you don't belong with God or you don't belong in community, and you've confessed these sins that that really keep you down and make you feel ashamed, a gospel lens will tell you that it is finished, that you've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And through a gospel lens, you can walk into this world and you can see what's broken, but you can also see what's being redeemed. When you have a gospel lens, you can see God more clearly. You can see that he loves you and he cares about you, that he wants to be with you. You can see yourself more clearly, that you have repented of your sin And even though you're not completely reformed yet, you are a new creation. You can see that. And you can see others more clearly. You know, instead of when you look at others, if you're looking through a gospel lens, when you look at other people, you primarily see them in their relationship with God rather than in their relationship to you. So instead of being filled with comparison quite as much, where you're like, well, she's good at A, I'm good at B. Why do people recognize that he is good at that, but they don't recognize this in me? And we're just like constantly living in this. With a gospel lens, you can like catch yourself and be like, you know what? I don't have to live that way. Let me think about that other person a different way. Instead of comparing them to me, let me think about them in, in their relationship with God. Why do they respond this way? Well, I wonder what that means about how they need to know more about the grace of the gospel. This, if, if someone doesn't know Christ, we're thinking about them knowing Christ and not how we compare with them in other areas. Rather than sizing people up through this worldly lens and concluding at least I'm not as bad as she is or he is, when we have a gospel lens, we can resonate with the words of G.K. Chesterton, there but for the grace of God go I. Whatever good you have in you, Whatever good is happening in your life, 
it is not because of you. It is because Christ is at work in you. And so we can say, yes, everything in me is by the grace of God. You know, one of the most powerful explanations I've ever heard about living with this gospel lens and how it can transform your perspective was in seminary. And one of my friends is here today. Uh, we were classmates together, and uh, we had a great professor. His name's John Frame. And, you know, Frame would take questions, and people would try to stump him. Um, and somebody asked John Frame the question, so we know that Satan gives good things to God's people sometimes to corrupt them. How do we know if the good things that we've received in life are from Satan or from God? I was like, dang, that's a good question. Um, and Frame quickly answered. I was like, wow. And he said, um, you know, I guess at the end of the day, we can't know why we received what we've received. We can't know where exactly it originated. But, he said, whatever you have, whatever you've been given, if you take that thing and you dedicate it to God, then it becomes, it becomes God's, does it not? And if it is God's, then it is not a curse for you. It is only a blessing. So whatever you have, take it and give it to God, direct it to God, and it will become life for you and not death. Wow. Okay. I mean, this is the power of living with this perspective that if everything I have in life is, is, is from God and I can live my life before him, I can dedicate it to him, then everything becomes a blessing to me ultimately, even the broken things in our lives. So Solomon, this is the, the gospel lens. It's learning to see the world through the lens of the gospel rather than merely through the lens of life under the S-U-N. We're living more and more with this understanding and this perspective of Solomon and ultimately in a much greater way than with Jesus. Jesus teaches us to see that the kingdom of God is at hand in our lives. So Solomon gives us this lens and then Jesus takes us deeper, and then Solomon has more to say for us about how this lens impacts our lives. So now we're going to move on and talk about so how this lens teaches us, how the gospel lens teaches us, it reshapes us so that we can be more wise about what we hate. Life under the sun teaches us to be wise about what we hate. So this concept of wise hatred throughout the passage He's, he's constantly saying, so I hated this, and so I hated that, and so I hated this and that. And some of the things that he says I hate are actually really important things. So it's important for us to understand how to wisely hate things, according to Solomon. So wise hate. He says we should have a wise hatred about our life in chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun is grievous to me. And he says we should have a wise hatred for our work. In verse 18, same chapter, I hated my toil. Then he goes on and says we should have a wise hatred for our money and leaving an inheritance to our children. I leave everything to the man who comes after me, but I don't know if he'll be wise or a fool, even though I've tried to be so wise. That's my summary of what he says. And then he says, going on to chapter 8, he says we should have a wise hatred about death. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. 
And then at the very end of chapter 8 in verses 16 through 18, he says we should have a wise hatred about being popular, influential, or trying to size up our legacy so that after we die, we want, before we die, we want to know what kind of an impact, what kind of a legacy am I having? And Solomon says you should have a wise hatred for that kind of thinking about your own kind of personal impact and grandiosity in that way. So he goes through, just to reiterate, the, our life, our work, our generational influence, our money, avoiding death and leaving a legacy. Solomon says you need, need to have a wise hatred for these elements of life under the sun. So what is wise hate? So wise hate is this new perspective that the gospel gives us that in any of these areas of life, that if we look to them to find ultimate lasting meaning, then they will, they will corrupt us, they will leave us dry, they will not pay off in the way that they have promised us. And Solomon says, you, you, should, you are wise to hate living life for things under the sun if you treat them with ultimate and lasting value. So that, to go back through the list, you should not hate your life in the sense that you should want to kill yourself or commit suicide. You should hate your life in the sense that if you are the center of your life, if you are the sun, the S-U-N of your universe and everything revolves around you, Solomon says you should hate that perspective on life. That's not what life is about. He says your work, let's take work for example. Work is a good thing. Actually, work was created by God before the fall. But it got broken. And so now what do we do with work? We look to work sometimes to our careers to find ultimate lasting value. And so we serve work and we say we hope that if we serve our work, then ultimately we will really become somebody who really feel like we have value and substance. We ride work like a seesaw up and down. When our boss says something nice to us or we get praised or we have a good experience or we get a raise, we're like, woo. I feel great. It feels downright spiritual, doesn't it? We feel like God really loves us when we get a raise. Why is it so hard to know that God loves us when we're not getting raises, right? I mean, we, we, judge, our, we judge God himself based on how our work is going. And so we, we get enmeshed with work and our core identity. Take financial security, for example, we feel great when things are secure. We don't when things are not as good. Or wanting to leave a legacy after we die. If influencing the world and, and thinking about the, the long-term generational impact of our lives becomes the reason why we're pursuing that impact, then that's, that's really messed up. Because what am I or what are you actually going to do for the world in two or three generations? Nothing. The only thing that's going to come to any kind of value is if we are doing it through the gospel. And so we develop this wise kind of hatred for life under the sun, S-U-N, if we're wise in the gospel. Gospel wisdom teaches us to hate anything that leads us away from the grace of God. Going back to those lies, when, when you... Your sin, you know, when Satan accuses you about your sin and tells you that you're still guilty for sin, that you have confessed through Christ, then you hate that thought. 
You hate that thought because it's not true. It's a lie that leads you away from the grace of God. When Satan comes in and tells you that you should still be ashamed in a way that there's a barrier for you between you and God or you and other people because of sin or shortcomings in your life, then you should hate that thought because that thought is not true. It is not consistent with the gospel. And so we learn to view our lives through the lens of the gospel and we learn to hate the right things. In Greek mythology, Homer tells us a story. I've used this before, but I love this story. Of Ulysses, he was leading his men through a narrow strait. And as he was leading them through a strait, they were rowing. They passed an island that was full, it was a small island full of sirens, sea nymphs, who had the power to lure the men to ruin by their charming voices. And so what Ulysses did is he had the men, in, in order to not be pulled off course, he stuffed the ears of his men with cotton or something else so that they couldn't hear the sea nymphs. But some of them could hear through the, the whatever was blocking their, their hearing, and they were lured astray. Some of them went crazy. So later on, another sea captain, Jason, and his men, the Argonauts, approached the same strait. They had heard the stories about the sirens, but instead of trying to stuff the ears of his men, what he did is he hired a minstrel named Orpheus, who from the stern of the ship sang a more beautiful song than the sea nymphs. And so as the men listened to the minstrel Orpheus, they were not distracted and they sailed on. This is a beautiful illustration of learning to see and hear the world through a gospel lens. Jesus Christ is our minstrel. He is singing a gospel song over you. He's singing it all the time, all the time. Sometimes we can hear it, and sometimes we can't. But we want to learn how to tune into the frequency of his voice and tune out the voice of the distractions. We want to listen to the voice of the one and not the voice of the crowds. And the more we do that, the more we'll be living in line with the gospel of grace. The gospel doesn't just change what we hate. It also changes the, the corollaries. It changes how we love. And this is why I included that passage from Luke. You may have wondered why. But I find it amazing to me that Jesus, who was obviously the gospel himself, I mean, you can't be more tuned in to God's purposes. And he is going into Jerusalem. And rather than being filled with hatred for his enemies, people who he longed to gather into his arms, he longed to gather, but they would not have him. Instead of hatred propelling Jesus to his cross, instead of canceling all of his detractors, Jesus was compelled by love. He was compelled by love. He was so filled by a gospel perspective that even in the midst of being hated, he did not return hate with hate, but he returned hate with love. Jesus teaches us not just how to be wise about what we hate, but how to be wise about who we love. We can be wise when someone is treating us in a way that isn't right, when someone wants to cancel us, when someone is downright mean to us. We may need to protect ourselves. If you're, I'm not talking about an abusive situation. I'm, I'm talking about something in the lines of what is more normal. 
um, we can love instead of hating. And so Jesus shows us also how to love. So life under the sun teaches us how to be wise about what we hate and what we love. And then the final point is life under the sun teaches us how to be wise about what we enjoy, what we enjoy. So chapter 8, verse 15 closely parallels chapter 2, 24, and 25, which is kind of the conclusion. I left that out just for the sake of a little more brief reading. But in 8.15, Solomon writes this, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him. This will, this will go with, well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So where will the wise find joy in the midst of life under the sun? Okay, going back to the perspective. So you're living right here, and a lot of life is filled with all of this. So where do the wise find joy in the midst of all of the toil under the sun? Well, he says that there's some places where you can find joy. And it's really earthy, actually, what he, rec- what he recommends. He doesn't say you should go to church more often. Uh, he doesn't say you should probably read your Bibles a little bit more often than you have. He doesn't mention prayer. It's kind of like, a little bit like, wow. It's kind of like, whoa. Um, he says, you should find joy in a good meal and good drink with people that you love. That's, he kind of adds the people that you love in 224 and 25. So in the midst of life under the sun, S-U-N, if you're tuned into what God is doing and God provides for you and he gives you a good meal and a good drink and you can drink or eat that with people that you love and very importantly, and in the midst of that moment, you can see what a blessing that is for you, that in the midst of what is filled with toil and struggle, God has blessed you with something good. And obviously this is, this can extrapolate out to other things in life. When God gives you something good that is from his hand in the midst of a broken world, and you can see that, and you can enjoy that in that moment, that is a gift from God. That is a gift from God to you. It is a sign for you that God really does love you and care for you. He really does love you and care for you. Too often when we're eating something good, drinking something nice, what are we, we're consumed with what's next. We're, we're worried about something. We're, we're eating that meal and drinking that beverage anxiously. We're, we're consumed with what's broken. But in moments where God blesses us, we can actually enjoy life and actually be thankful to God for what he has given us. That is a gift from God. And God commends us if we can enjoy that. So in the midst of life, we need to learn how to enjoy some of these blessings that God gives us. I remember reading a commentary when I was preaching through the Old Testament, and it was one of these sections where the children of Israel were doing something awful and not responding how they're supposed to respond. And I remember the commentator saying, you know, he had spent just chapters talking about the children of Israel and all of their ingratitude. And he said, one practice I've built into my life as not wanting to be like the children of Israel, but wanting to learn to be grateful, he says that every time I take out the trash, I thank God. I'm like, really? He said, I thank God because if I have trash, if I have just cans full of trash, it means that God has provided for me. It means he's provided a lot of things for me. 
maybe everything in there wasn't like an amazing meal. But he's like, every time I roll the cans out to the street, I thank God that he has given me trash to take out. And that really hit me. How even the mundane things in life, the things that are old, you just feel like utterly pointless. I'm going to take the trash out. Even that, if we turn that over to God and make that a moment where we see what God is doing, it can turn into a blessing for us. So let's briefly go back and look at some of these areas of life. What about hating life or can we find joy in life? In our lives, if we take the Lord and we put Jesus at the center, we can find joy in places that we thought were utterly meaningless. What about in work? Yes, if we make work our ultimate purpose and goal, we should hate that. But if we work for the Lord rather than for men, then we can actually work hard and actually find joy in what we do. What about money and financial security or generational wealth? Yeah, if you, if you plug that in and you say, man, I, this is what my life is all about, then you should hate that. But if you have money and you want to invest your money to help other people and for the sake of the kingdom of God, that's a blessing to you. That's a good thing. So wherever you look, something that could be utterly uh, corruptive to you, com- totally could corrupt everything about your life from one perspective if you serve it and worship it, if you will dedicate that to God, if you will give that to God and say, Lord, no, I'm putting you at the center, I'm serving you, then what could be ultimately corruptive to you could now be a source of great and eternal joy in your life. But the difference comes in being able to see and come in being able to see. And like I said at the beginning, Oftentimes what we grieve and what we struggle through and what we lament is where we find what we really care about. Nicholas Walter Storff put it this way. He said, every lament is a love song. Every lament is a love song. So think about that. What do you really care about? What do you really care about? And then look at that through the lens of the gospel Are you treating that thing that you really care about? Are you looking for that to be your ultimate meaning in life, that thing? If so, it will come to nothing. And actually, it will corrupt you along the way. But if you take that thing that you love so much and you dedicate it to God and you put Christ at the center and you say, yes, I love this person or yes, I love this thing, but I am gonna do it for your glory and not for mine, that can become a source of ultimate blessing for you And the difference is in your heart. And the difference is in your mind. The difference is in your worship. Is it about God or is it about you? May God give us wisdom to see life under the sun and the difference in the life that Jesus Christ brings as we live life under the Son of God, the King of Kings. Let's pray. Lord God, we need your help. We... uh, Admit that we find ourselves in the milieu of everything happening, um, often living in a way that's not consistent with your values. Um, We look to things that you've created that are broken to find ultimate life in them. It doesn't make any sense, but our hearts can stray. But Lord, there are also times when we get a fresh perspective and the new creation life of the gospel gives us the ability to see and to love and to hate in the right ways. And so God, we just pray for more of that. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us with your wisdom so that we'll be able to see life 
through your lenses. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.